Good to see you. Glad you're here this morning. Man, that was beautiful. Uh, it really loved to have the violin, all the instruments up there. God ministers through song. Uh, you remember God sent David to King Saul, and David would just play music, and the distressing spirit would be driven from Saul. So when you hear those times of music in here, just let the Lord minister to you. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. Our sermon text uh, this morning starts in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we'll start reading in verse 36. If you're just joining us, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. Uh, This book was written by a man named Luke, and Acts tells the story of how the news of Jesus began to spread after Jesus returned to heaven. Jesus came, he lived, died, rose again to pay for our sin, he ascended to heaven, and then Acts tells the story, the historical events that took place after Jesus ascended to heaven. Uh, We'll be reading here, starting in Acts 15, 36, we're actually going to read all the way through Acts 16, verse 5. Let's go ahead and pray before we start reading. Well, Father, we do thank you. We would just look to you, our good God, and ask for your continued ministry now through your word. We thank you, Father, uh, that you minister to us through song as we sing and open our mouths to you through, through, through music. But we just pray now, Father, as we open your scriptures, you would continue to minister, continue to help us, Father. Uh, we thank you for it now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Acts 15.36, Luke is writing and he says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they also knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." Amen. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're around Christian circles very much now, um, church growth is a very popular topic in our day. What can you do to help your church grow? And listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting a church to grow. Healthy things in time should probably grow, but growth is not always a great indicator of health. A large church can be very unhealthy. But church growth is still a big obsession in our day. And listen, the number of strategies for growth out there are endless. I just want you to go home later and Google 
church growth strategies. I did it. And you'll find 25 actionable strategies for rapid church growth, 10 budget-friendly growth strategies, which would be nice for us, seven keys to church growth, and on and on. And there are all kinds of suggestions for how you might grow your church. You want your church to grow? Well, you just need to be more innovative. You need to be more relevant. You need to exude more passion on a Sunday morning. Or my personal favorite, you just need to smile more on Sunday morning and you will grow your church. And listen, there's nothing necessarily wrong with all of those things. But we also don't really find those things in Scripture. Uh, Jesus promised, Matthew 16, that he would grow, he would build his universal church. And Jesus never did then tell his disciples to just exude more passion on a Sunday morning. Disciples just smile on Sundays and things will work out well for you until I return again. No, Jesus, God, has other ways of growing his church. Things that we would not necessarily consider to be great growth strategies, but God uses them. And we see in the text we just read a couple of things God uses right here to grow his church. This text is all about church growth. Look at the last verse again, Acts 16, 5. So, because of what happens before this, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. It's about church growth, this text. And we see in this text two things that God does here to grow these two church or to grow these churches. The two things that we'll cover today. Here they are on the screen. How does God grow these churches? Growth through conflict and growth through surrender. And the first thing we see here, point number one, we see here a growth through conflict. You know, in the previous passage we looked at last Sunday, Paul and Barnabas, they returned to their home church in Antioch, which was just to the north of Israel. And verse 36 there says that Paul and Barnabas now waited there in Antioch for some time, maybe waited through the winter uh, as it was harder to travel then. Like living in Minnesota, you hibernate here in the winter and in the nice months you travel. As Jim Gaffigan says, we made it through the bad months here, so now that it's beautiful, let's go somewhere else. And everybody does. And Paul and Barnabas now here, after maybe the winter, they decide, verse 36 says, to visit every city where they recently had preached Christ. In Acts 13 and 14, Paul went on his first of three missionary journeys here in the book of Acts. He traveled on that first missionary journey with Barnabas. And they traveled to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, stopping in towns along the way, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, preaching Christ. Many people came to faith in Christ, and many new churches were started in those towns. And they now want to go back to visit those churches. 
And this will now be the start of Paul's second missionary journey here in the book of Acts. God ultimately taking Paul on this trip all the way to Greece. But before Paul and Barnabas can ever even leave here, you know how you want to leave on vacation and you can't even get out the door because there's always problems? Paul and Barnabas, before they ever leave, hit conflict here over who to take with them. If you look again at verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You think back to this first missionary trip in Acts. Paul and Barnabas on that trip had taken this young man named John Mark. He was Barnabas' younger cousin. And they took, them, took him as their helper, kind of a ministry assistant. Uh, they were probably training John Mark for Christian ministry. But John Mark then, in the middle of that trip, he left. He really deserted them. If you look again, verse 38, Paul says there that John Mark had withdrawn from them. The Greek word is the word apostanta, where we get the word apostasy. John Mark fell away, deserted them in the middle of the trip, abandoned them, maybe because things got hard on that mission trip. You might know the feeling. It's possible that some of you, you, you planned at some point to go on some um, short-term mission trip. Uh, you were excited. I get to see Africa. How cool. And then you got to Africa and it was hot and it was buggy and you got diarrhea uh, and you still had to work to build a house or a church building or something and you were suddenly dreaming about home and John Mark may have gotten some serious diarrhea and he just didn't like this trip as difficult as it was and Paul and Barnabas got some serious persecution on that first trip. It was very hard and John Mark left. When the going gets tough, as we say, the tough keep going, and John Mark went home. But Barnabas now wants to give John Mark a second chance, wants to take him on this second trip now, and it makes sense. Barnabas in the Bible is called the son of encouragement, an encourager. This guy always took people under his wing, always helped people. Barnabas helped Paul, when Paul had first become a Christian. And listen, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. This was a flesh and blood relative. This was family. And God gives second chances, right? I mean, thankfully, the first time you fail as a Christian in ministry, well, God doesn't then exclude you from all future ministry. No, God gives second and third and fourth chances, allows you to try and fail many times as a Christian But Paul doesn't want to take this guy who deserted them on the first trip. And that also makes sense. I mean, you you think about these guys on, on these trips. 
This was like going to war. And man, you, you, you get caught in a firefight in war and the guy beside you runs? Do you ever trust that guy again? And you then stand to lose the war. The entire mission because of that deserter. And listen, Paul would not stand for anyone to put his mission at risk. Jesus in Matthew 28, he told these men to go and make disciples, make more Christ followers in all nations. And Paul was not about to let John Mark or anyone else ruin that mission. So, we don't know exactly, but it seems that Barnabas here was maybe more focused on the man. John Mark wanted to give him a second chance, which was good. And Paul, though, was maybe more focused on the mission to protect it, which was also good. I.H. Marshall says this. He says, this is a classic example of the perpetual problem of whether to place the interests of the individual or the work as a whole first. And there is no rule of thumb for dealing with it. And Paul and Barnabas now argue over this thing. And this, this is not just some gentle discussion around the table after dinner. No, look at the start of verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement. The Greek word for disagreement there signifies anger, irritation, exasperation in a disagreement. The Greek word is the word paroxysmos, where we get the English word paroxysm, which is a violent explosion. We sometimes refer to a paroxysm of rage. This situation produced in Barnabas and Paul some legitimate fury. And they do not resolve it here. If you look again at verse 39, And there arose a sharp agreement so that they separated from each other. Pause. Because that right there, if you're walking through Acts, is absolutely crazy. These two men have been together for years now. They have worked side by side to start that church in Antioch. They started churches everywhere on that first missionary trip. They faced danger together, threatened in every city. Paul stoned in Lystra when Barnabas was there. And that type of stuff is bonding for people. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, Nothing bonds men more than being together in dangerous situations. Foxholes make for lasting relationships. There is no doubt that a powerful affection had developed between Paul and Barnabas. But now, this sharp disagreement and they separate. Verse 39 says that Barnabas now took John Mark and sailed to Cyprus on their own little mission trip, and Paul took Silas, whom we met in Acts 15, and went to Asia Minor to the churches Paul started earlier. Now, this right here, this will not be a permanent 
separation between these men. In Paul's later letters in the Bible, Paul speaks very highly of Barnabas. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that John Mark had now become very useful to him in Christian ministry. So these men will reconcile over time, but they are now at odds in the book of, in the book of Acts. And you just pause and think about this. What we see right there, it's just a legitimate Christian conflict. Maybe not sinful. Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, he does not see this as sinful. He believes they just came to different judgments on the best way forward here, different values and priorities, which is possible. Or this could have been sinful. I think it probably was in some ways. When we get into sharp conflict, rarely is it a sinless sharp conflict. Could have been sinful. You you know, it's easy to think that because these guys are in the Bible, because Paul wrote a lot of the Bible, well, they never sinned, which is a joke. They were sinners. Only sinless hero in the Bible was Jesus Christ. All the rest of them were very imperfect. And you know, sinful or not with this conflict, this right here was just very human. A very human conflict. Derek Thomas says that we see here that the very best of men are still just men at best. Even Christians of the highest caliber still walk with a limp. Saved by grace through faith in Christ, but still very imperfect. Martin Luther, one of the greatest reformers of the Christian church, he once wrote this about himself. He said, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike. Fighting against innumerable monsters and devils, I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing wild forests. It was Luther's way of just saying, I'm a wild boar of of a man. Every Christian imperfect, a very, very human conflict right here. But please notice this. This disagreement, this separation here God used it to grow his church and when you think about it what were the consequences of this fight well now instead of just one missionary team there are two covering twice as much ground and there are now two different apprentices learning to minister. John Mark learning with Barnabas and Silas learning with Paul. Two men who will eventually grow up to play huge roles in the Bible. Silas will have a big impact in Corinth and other places as we'll see in Acts. And John Mark, well, he'll eventually grow up to just write the book of Mark. And what we see there, I think, is just... God's sovereignty over all things. That God is over all things. And God can use even very terrible looking things. God can use even the conflicts, the, the arguments, the, the sins of his own people to grow his church. Now, that does not mean 
that we should intentionally start fights with one another. Oh man, this, that, that, that's a church growth strategy. Well, we want to see the church grow. Let's fight. Uh, no, probably not what we need to do with, with that right there. The church will always grow more through unity than through disunity. But that does not mean that our disunity will ever stop God. Because it won't. Derek Thomas says this. Even in church divisions and strife, God overrules our folly and sin to promote His work. He brings about good from the worst of circumstances. He beautifies His church despite what we do, proving once again the truth of Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. God, from even the worst of circumstances, brings about good. And that should be a massive encouragement in your own life, Christian. The hardest of times, the the pain, the trial in your life, suffering even right now, maybe God is still working. And He will bring forth eternal good for you and the rest of His people. And man, isn't that just the principle that we see at the cross? Isn't that it? The worst of all circumstances, the death of God's own son. And yet God, even there, brings about good salvation for all who will now turn to Christ in in faith. God works through even the worst of circumstances, even through this conflict right here to grow his church. So this one thing we see here, one way God grows his church here, grow through conflict is just a sovereign God who will grow his church through anything. And a second thing we see here then is growth through surrender. Acts 16.1 right there that we read, it says that Paul and Silas now traveled to Asia Minor and they met there as they traveled through the towns a young Christian named Timothy whose mother was formerly Jewish. She was also now a Christian, but Timothy's father was Greek, a Gentile, probably not a Christian. And man, you you think about this right here. This is a wonderful providence from God for Paul. Because this man, Timothy, that they just stumbled upon, Timothy will now become Paul's lifelong companion. This will become a father-son relationship. Maybe because Paul converted Timothy the first time through. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, he will call Timothy his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And verse 2 there says that Timothy was well spoken of by the other Christians up in this area in Asia Minor. Timothy was of a good reputation, so Paul wants to take him along on this trip. But Paul does something first. You look at verse 3 again. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him. And if you've been following along with us through Acts, that should maybe sound to you a little bit shocking, a little bit confusing. And here's why. At the start of Acts 15... 
some Jewish Christians called Judaizers were teaching that in order for people to be saved, forgiven by God, well, people had to trust in Christ, but they also needed to be circumcised if they were men like Jews. What we would now call a Christ plus gospel. These Judaizers were teaching. In order to be saved, to be forgiven by God, you must trust in Christ, plus do a couple other things yourself. In that instance, it was circumcision. That was just last chapter, Acts 15. And Paul and Barnabas, Acts 15, when they heard the Judaizers were teaching that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, they went nuts. Acts 15.2 says they had no small dissension with the Judaizers, argued with the Judaizers. And Paul and Barnabas then traveled to Jerusalem, where they had this huge church council to discuss the issue. And the council's decision in Acts 15, they said circumcision was not necessary for salvation. The only way of salvation was through faith alone in Christ alone. Just a simple living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, and God forgives you the true Christ alone gospel. And Paul and Silas now, on this trip, Paul and Silas, they're actually announcing to all the churches in Asia Minor, what this council decided. Look at Acts 16, 4 again. As they went on their way through these cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And listen, one thing that Paul and Silas were announcing to all of these churches in Asia Minor They were saying nobody needs to be circumcised to be saved. Paul in Galatians 5, 6, he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In Christ, circumcision did not matter anymore. And yet Paul now, for some reason, right before taking Timothy on this trip, Paul has Timothy circumcised. Why? Well, here's why. That right there is just a perfect example of what we talked about last week. That is what I called last week a gospel surrender. Paul, Paul and Timothy here, they were simply surrendering some of their freedom in Christ for the sake of the gospel. In order that Jews, lost Jews in Asia Minor, might be saved. I want you to look again at the middle of verse 3. Very important statement right here. Paul took Timothy and circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews who were in those places. This right here, it had nothing to do with salvation. This right here had everything to do with sensitivity to the Jews there in Asia Minor. Paul knew that those unbelieving Jews in Asia Minor, if they knew that Timothy was uncircumcised, well, that would offend them to no end. They wouldn't listen to a thing that Paul then had to say about Christ. 
the gospel door with those Jews would be shut for good. And so Paul, even though Timothy has freedom here to remain uncircumcised, and Timothy probably wanted to remain that way, I would imagine, well, they now surrender that freedom for the sake of the gospel. And this right here is exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9.19. Paul says this, For though I am free from all in Christ. Free, Timothy and I, to not follow this Jewish rule of circumcision, even though we're perfectly free, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, having Timothy circumcised in order to win Jews, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul and Timothy here, they were just surrendering now some of the freedom that they had in Christ, becoming now like the Jews, as Paul said, for the sake of the gospel, that by all means they might save some. Doing anything and everything they could here to save some of those lost Jews in Asia Minor. Even if that included circumcising Timothy, which they did not have to do. For any reason whatsoever. It was a gospel surrender is what it was. Surrendering freedom. And listen, God calls all Christians at times to do similar things. This type of gospel surrender. You know, just as I mentioned last week, if you now, you have a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you now have tremendous freedom in Christ. You just do. You have lots of freedom now in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious thing. Many Christians are scared of freedom, but it's a glorious thing to have the freedom we have in Christ. There is nothing you else that you need to do to be saved And you have lots of freedom now to enjoy all of God's good gifts to you. You essentially now live in this great, big, beautiful field. You're you're free to play, to explore, to, to enjoy all of God's gifts. Now, there's a boundary around that field. Anything explicitly mentioned in the Bible as sin is outside that boundary, off limits to you as a Christian. But within that boundary, in that field, you are free to enjoy. For example, as we saw last week, Acts 15, you are now free, Christian, in Christ to eat your steak rare, bloody, steak tartare, which the Jews were forbidden to do. It's still nasty, as I said last week, if you want to do that, waste of a good steak, uh, not to grill it, but you have freedom in Christ to eat your steak bloody. You're free to eat bacon, also forbidden to Jews. You're free to watch a movie if it doesn't cause you or those with you to sin. You're free to dress how you want in modesty. You can color your hair orange or blue if you'd like, if that's modest in your home, whatever that is. You're free to drink wine or beer if you prefer in moderation. No drunkenness and definitely not light beer, which is inherently sinful. Tremendous, (laughs) tremendous, tremendous freedom that you now have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are times as a Christian when God asks 
you to surrender some of your freedom for the sake of others. Romans 14, Paul says, if you are around a weaker Christian, a sincere believer whose faith is just weak in one of those areas, doesn't have the faith to do it, it would cause them to stumble in sin. If they saw you do it, then you, Christian, surrender that freedom in the name of love for the sake of that other person. Or you're around some non-Christians, maybe like here in this text, and they be offended by some freedom that you have, your vegetarian neighbors maybe. And they would be highly offended at your steak tartare if you ate that in, in front of them. Not listen to you any longer. Anything you had to say about Christ, well, then surrender that freedom around them. For the sake of the gospel, that by all means, as Paul said, you might save some. Become all things to all people. In order that you might save some. Become a vegetarian if necessary. Do whatever. Color your hair blue if necessary. Whatever you need to do to save some. There are times as a Christian when you should surrender some freedom. Not a matter of salvation. But a matter of sensitivity for the sake of others. But please hear this. There are other times as a Christian when you should definitely not surrender your freedom in Christ. And we see that clearly with the Apostle Paul. Right here, Paul wants to take Timothy into Asia Minor. And for the sake of the lost Jews there in Asia Minor, Paul has Timothy circumcised. But on another occasion in the Bible, Paul wants to take Titus into Jerusalem. And what does Paul do there? Well, here it is, Galatians 2-3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Paul did not do it at that time. And Paul there, Galatians 2 in Jerusalem, he really kind of flaunts the fact that Titus was not circumcised. Read the book of Galatians. He's basically saying, even though I felt tremendous pressure in Jerusalem to have Titus circumcised, I did not do it. Massive difference in what Paul did. In those two different situations. And, and what was it that made all the difference? The people Paul was around in each situation. The context. Here with Timothy, Paul was going to be around all these lost Jews. Sincere in their Judaism. Who'd be offended if Timothy wasn't circumcised. They would close their ears to Christ. But in Jerusalem, with Titus... No, Paul wasn't just going to be around a lot of lost, unbelieving Jews. No, Paul there in Jerusalem, he was going to be around a lot of self-righteous, professing Christians. Judaizers, like in Acts 15, 
People who were saying you needed to trust in Christ and be circumcised to be saved. People who were counting circumcision as some badge of honor before God. Supposedly made you holier, more righteous, more acceptable in God's eyes if you did it. It was a perverted Christ plus gospel. A bunch of professing Christians teaching it. So what did Paul do there in that context? He did not have Titus circumcised. And he told people about it in the book of Galatians. He said this, Galatians 2.5, To those Judaizers, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that, here's the reason, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Paul, in that context, what did he do? He stood firm on that freedom in Christ to remain uncircumcised, demonstrating with his actions that the only thing that makes a person righteous before God is faith in Christ. By not surrendering that freedom in that self-righteous context, Paul was defending the true Christ alone gospel. And we as Christians should take a similar posture with our freedom in Christ. Let me give it to you in living color, as they say. As a Christian, you have freedom in Christ to eat steak tartare, to eat bacon, color your hair orange if you want, freedom in Christ to drink a glass of wine, a beer. God nowhere in the Bible says that wine is inherently sinful. No, God actually says it's a gift. Psalm 104.15, God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. Jesus drank wine, and Jesus was sinless which is proof that wine is not inherently sinful. Now, some will say then, well, it was grape juice. No, it wasn't. Because Paul says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine. And when's the last time you saw someone drunk with grape juice? It doesn't happen. Now, listen. With all of God's gifts, whether it's food or sex or wine, you can abuse it. For sure. And the Bible's crystal clear when it does come to alcohol, you should not be drunk with wine. It is sin outside the boundaries of Christian freedom. But inside those boundaries, it's a freedom in Christ. Now, some of you will think, well, I just think it's better if Christians don't do that. That's fine. But just acknowledge that to be your opinion. And don't treat that as scripture, because it's not. And do you know what kills people more than alcohol? Legalism. John Piper, when he took over as lead pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church some 30-something years ago, you know the first thing he did? He got rid of the no-alcohol rule that they had for their members. And why? John Piper said this, because legalism will take more people to hell than alcohol. Legalism is more serious 
than the damage that can be done with alcohol, though there's a lot of damage that can be done with alcohol. It's a freedom in Christ. However, if you are around another Christian whose faith is weak, sincere, humble Christian, but does not have the faith to enjoy that freedom, or that Christian had problems in the past, you would cause them to stumble in sin if you had that drink or something around them, or a non-Christian maybe who would stop listening to you if you did that, you should gladly then surrender that freedom around those people. But please hear me on this. If that other person is not really just a sincere, weaker believer, but is actually a self-righteous believer, a Judaizer in that area, and because they don't partake of that freedom, they think they're somehow better, more righteous, look down on Christians who do embrace that freedom as second-class citizens, or maybe not even saved. And all all the while suddenly turning that beautiful Christ alone gospel into a perverted Christ plus gospel. Adding their extra biblical rules to the gospel, thinking that it makes them holier, more righteous, because they follow their ridiculous extra biblical rules. If you're around that person, well, I think God would then say to you, Christian, do not give up your freedom around those people. Stand firm on that freedom in Christ, demonstrating with your actions that the only thing that saves you, makes you righteous, acceptable in God's eyes, is faith alone in Christ. Defending with your actions, as Paul did, that Christ alone gospel. As Paul said in Galatians 2, do not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved by your actions. You thought Luther was a wild boar? Nothing compared to Paul. He did not put up with anybody messing with the gospel in word or in behavior. And listen, some of that holier-than-thou behavior, it perverts the gospel message. Says there's something else you must do in addition to Christ to really be righteous. In God's sight. Please hear this. God never in the Bible tells you, Christian, to surrender your gospel freedom for the self-righteous. For the weak, yes. But not for the self-righteous. Do not live your life just to please self-righteous Christians in this world. Do you know that's exactly what the, the Apostle Peter did on one occasion in Galatians 2? He gave up some gospel freedom. Why? Because he was afraid, the Bible says, of the self-righteous Judaizers. And Paul rebuked Peter for it. 
in front of the entire Antioch church. Do not live your life just to please self-righteous, arrogant, holier-than-thou legalistic Christians. But around the truly weak believers or unbelievers like here with Paul and Timothy, then surrender. Surrender gladly, gladly your freedom. Become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel that by all means you might save some. And listen, through that surrender, through your healthy surrender, Christian, in the right context, around the right people, God will grow his church through that surrender. God does it here. Paul and Timothy, they surrender this freedom here to remain uncircumcised. This was a very painful surrender for Timothy. <laughs> and God uses, God uses this surrender, uses their actions. Look again, one, time, one more time, Acts 16, 5, into this passage. So, after these actions, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And we just see, now we see it in the text, God growing His universal text, universal church in this text in two different ways. First a growth through conflict, and now a growth through surrender. And, and what, what, you know, you back up, what, what do we learn here from this text? Lots of things, I think. One thing I think, though, I think we can see here that God just works out of the box at times. He just works out of the box, man. We so often try to put God into this tiny little box of ways he'll work. It's called a God-in-the-box theology. And we've all got one. You think with your theology you can contain all of God. You can't. God just works out of the box at times in in, in the ways he, he works. You know, we put God in a box when we think about church growth. Just look online. You, you want to grow your church? Well, do these three things. Become innovative, be relevant, smile more. That is God-in-a-box theology. Does that help to smile on Sunday? I guess, unless you're really hurting, and then don't smile because you'd be a hypocrite. Smile if you feel like smiling. That's God. He says, you want to cry? Then cry. And God builds His church through tears. God, God says to those things, I think, you know, all these strategies. He's like, really? Smile more? How about this? I'll grow you through conflict. I'll grow you through painful surrender on, on your part. I'll grow you through trials. Count it all joy. James 1, when you fall into various trials. Why? Because it's through trials that we grow. I'll grow you through persecution. You know, every time in history... When people have tried to persecute and, and kill Christians, the church grows. Early Christian, Tertullian, he said the, the blood of the martyrs is just the seed of the church. It just causes the church to grow through persecution. Not just through smiling, happy, clappy churches. God works, as the hymn says, in some very mysterious ways. God just will not stay in our little our little. Box. He's a very out-of-the-box God in the way he works at times. And that applies to your life, Christian. If you now trust in Christ, you know, we all have in our minds as Christians a little box for the ways that we think God will work in our lives. And it's usually always very comfortable, very pleasurable. This is how you work in my life. And God will not stay in that box. He just won't. He's too gracious. He's too loving to stay in our boxes and let us control him. He will not be controlled. 
He's very mysterious at times in how he works. His ways, the Bible says, far above our ways. So listen, wherever you're at in your life right now, Christian, I pray you just can trust that whether or not you see God right now, whether or not you can understand what he's doing, you trust that in all things right now in your life, in and through Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, God is working all things together for good, your good and the good of his church. I pray God will give you the faith to trust that he is for you at all times, but he will not stay in that box. Thank God for that. Father, we bless you. And we just would pause for a second here and just just recognize that you are infinite in your being. There is no one who understands everything about you. Infinite in your being. Infinite. Far above us. Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. That which is revealed belong to us and our children. We just acknowledge, Father, there are many secret things that belong to you. That you do not work just in the narrow stream of our tribal theology. You do not work, Father, just in the little confined box of our theology. But you work out of the box. And Father, if you see fit to grow our church... We would love that, I think. (laughs) Pray you'd help us with the extra trouble that would bring us. But Father, thy will be done. And do it as you see fit. Through conflict, through surrender, persecution, through trial, through pleasure, whatever it is. Father, help us. Give us faith. Give us faith in our individual lives to trust that in all things you You really are working for your people in and through Christ in all things, at all times, for your glory and our joy. Help us, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.